This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Morning everyone. It's nice to see a full room. Um, before we start, let me just remind you that you are in the um, room number five and you are here for the Believing the Bot talk. So if that wasn't the talk that you were planning to attend, I suggest that you stay. Uh, it's going to be a riveting talk. Whether you intended to, talk, uh, to attend it or not, it's going to be worth your while. Um, so um, with that said, um, my name is Jakob van Amerwe and I'll be chairing the session. We have our two speakers here. Um, we've got Nikolai van Rommel and Ronald Richmond. Both uh, are associate directors with QBD Actuaries and Consultants. Um, and they're no stranger to the industry um, and no stranger to actuarial society and the stage of the convention. So you may have seen some of the, um, the talks that Ron has presented previously and will be doing later this afternoon as well. Um, so I'm really pleased to be involved with this session. I think they've put a lot of hard work in and it's a topic that I think is of particular interest to the industry but uh, to me as well. And I think um, if you do yourself a, a disservice by not actually reading the paper that underlies this talk today. So there is a full paper that you can get through the Actuarial Society. And um, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the team um, and they'll keep you posted. So good morning everyone. Uh, thanks for coming to our slot. It's great to see a mix of uh, familiar faces as well as some unfamiliar faces, so I hope you'll enjoy it. Also, thank you to the Actuarial Society for giving us this platform to talk about um, this topic today. What we'll be addressing is um, really the combination of two quite topical areas. Um, what, what I've presented before at the Actuarial Society, but um, what is quite an interesting and emerging area of research is the application of deep learning models within actuarial work. Um, and then the issue of model risk, um, which is, um, has always been topical, but I think has become more topical under SAM, understanding what risks do your models pose to you. And really this talk is about uh, a mix of those two concepts. What we'll be talking about is the model risk posed by deep learning models um, and the beginnings of an analysis of what this topic means and how these risks can be controlled. So before we dive into the content, um, what I'd like to just cover briefly is a little bit of a roundup of what's happened in deep learning in 2019. And we have a couple of um, nice examples from, um, from research that's happened this year. Probably the most striking one is the middle. So you can see the Mona Lisa moving around and talking. This was a piece of work done by the Samsung AI team um, where they've managed to animate static portraits using um, deep learning and in particular what they used is something called the generative adversarial network. Um, this year we've also seen a lot of work um, happening in other fields with GANs. So the rather tired looking gentleman um, on the bottom right hand part of the slide uh, is from a website called This Person Doesn't Exist. Um, and it's basically a website where you have a bunch of images of people which are photorealistic or better. Um, and generated again using these um, generative models called uh, generative adversarial networks. Other interesting advances, um, a lot of work in supervised learning where you're trying to predict something. Um, I've got an example of cancer prediction um, over here. You can see it's highlighting suspicious 
things in what I think is a CT scan. Um, and then in self-driving cars, I think that's a part of um, the tech industry that's extremely active. And we have a vision application in the top right-hand part of the slide. So basically, you feed an image into the deep neural network. And what it spits out for you are bounding boxes on where are other vehicles. So you can imagine that as a very advanced regression model. And then probably the area that where there have been the most advances in 2019, and this is a field where there's a new state-of-the-art record being set um, pretty much every two or three weeks, is uh, the field of natural language processing. So I've got a little excerpt of text from the GPT-2 model, um, which is put out by the folks at OpenAI. And this is a generative model for text. Um, and I think what they've succeeded in doing for the first time is having a large-scale text generation model which produces text that is almost indistinguishable from what a human writer would put together. So I fed in this prompt, an exciting world, part of the world of finance is, is insurance. And you can see that what the model's done is it's got quite a good grasp of different issues in the insurance industry. So it, start, it starts talking about airlines, cars, and then it starts talking about financial advice. And that's totally generated by a computer. What I found quite funny, maybe just an anecdote, is that when we sent this presentation in for review, one of the review comments that we got back was, you shouldn't write part of your speech on the slide. Um, <laughs> and, and obviously it wasn't clear that that is just text that's been generated by uh, a deep learning model. So you can see things are getting quite advanced. Um, and hopefully what we'll also show a little bit later, these are general applications. Hopefully what we'll show later are also some applications within actuarial work. So that being said, I mean, this is all very exciting, but there's an interesting news story um, a couple of months ago, maybe I think it was even last year, um, where Amazon had to scrap an internal algorithm that they were running to find um, CVs that looked quite um, promising for the company. So they had been running this recruitment algorithm since 2014, um, and they were looking to identify the top resumes in quite an automated fashion. And what the Reuters news article points out is a core part of Amazon's strategy is automate as much as you can. Automate your pricing, automate how things are organized in your warehouses, and what they try to do was also automate recruitment. Um, but what they found is that after they trained the model on past applications and past successful applications to Amazon, that this algorithm didn't really like female candidates. That, that's how Reuters put it. And what they found is that because Amazon had this history of hiring generally male candidates, and that's a bias that we have um, in the tech industry and, and probably in other industries as well, the algorithm was really reproducing those choices. So it had started to downweight CVs where it had, for example, the word netball in it or woman's chess team. It was downweighting those words. So you can see part of the pitfalls. You've got a lot of exciting applications here, but there can be some serious pitfalls when you use advanced models. Um, in the areas of bias and other areas that we'll address today. So really, that's the introduction to what we'll be talking about today. Okay. There we go. So we'll be covering three, the presentation in three main sections. We'll be talking about our view of what actuarial modeling is all about and where does uh, machine learning and deep learning fit in with that. So what we've come up with is um, almost a symbolic notation for different types of actuarial models, which we'll run through, and hopefully that will help to clarify 
exactly what is a machine learning model and what is a deep learning model. We'll then describe our views on model risk management, and that section will be done by Nikolai. Um, and then we'll bring the two topics together. We'll be talking about model risk management for deep learning models with two examples, one in the realm of short-term insurance and one in, in from life insurance, which is mortality forecasting. So let's get right into it. So when you start talking about model risk and when you start I think you have to think more broadly about what are the tasks that actuaries do for insurance companies. What is modeling? Um, and one of the best definitions of models that I found is at the top of this slide over here. This is from a really remarkable, about 120-page essay written by Joule in 1980. Um, which goes through all aspects of actuarial modeling, talks about where do things like credibility theory fit in. His definition is a model is a set of verifiable mathematical relationships or logical procedures, which is used to represent observed measurable real world phenomena. And now he says in, in two interesting things, to A, communicate alternative hypotheses about the causes of the phenomena and to predict the future behavior of the phenomena um, or the purpose of decision making. So you can see that um, we've got quite a, quite a meaty definition. Let's break it down into, into what he's talking about. A model is a, a, a representation of the real world. Um, and I think what we'll see as we go through the presentation that the, the real innovation of deep learning is that it represents the real world in a very powerful way, perhaps more powerful than traditional um, and machine learning models, which is why it presents new risks. Uh, the definition includes two points um, around what a model does. One is explanation, um, understanding why something has happened, and another one is prediction. And what we'll argue quite strongly today is that most actuarial modeling is actually focused on prediction, not so much on explanation. And that's a core part of, of actually what we'll be discussing. And the purpose is decision making. And decision making can be pricing, setting valuation assumptions, and, and all of the other activities that we do as actuaries. So, Getting back to the point about what is, what is the purpose of modeling, um, I think there's two different goals you can have. And I think there's always been a little bit of confusion, at least in my mind, as to what is actuarial modeling about. You, one goal can be building causal understanding. So in other words, you run a regression model and you see that certain um, classes of people have a higher claims frequency than others. So you've learned something about the world. You can make an inference and you can say generally me younger men are worse drivers than older married women. That might be something you could infer from a pricing model. Um, and what, what that type of understanding requires is techniques that are relatively interpretable because coefficients, and you look at confidence intervals of those coefficients to infer do you have some sort of real effect or not, and that's how you build your causal understanding. The same requirement for making inferences requires that the models are unbiased. So something that you might have come across in when you've done your actuarial education is different proofs that models are unbiased. I'm thinking, for example, of Thomas Mack's paper on the chain ladder where he shows that your chain ladder factors are unbiased estimators. And you'll generally think a lot about what are the strengths of your inferences? Can you actually say you've learned something? So that all falls under the heading of building a causal understanding or explaining things. I think for me, that's not really what a lot of actuarial work is about. Most of actuarial work falls under the second heading for me, which is making accurate predictions. And because of that goal, you find that the way in which you do modeling is a little bit different. 
if you're making accurate predictions, you might be more keen to use complex algorithms that are no longer as interpretable as um, traditional linear models. You might accept bias in the model if it increases the predictive accuracy, even if it means you can't really learn anything about the world from that model. And there'll be much more of an emphasis on quantifying predictive accuracy. So just speaking from a personal um, perspective, I always found that the actuarial education was more biased to this. Think of all of the times you had to try to remember what an F-test was on regression model coefficients. And frankly, in practice, I've never ever had to run one of those. Whereas building predictions, whether it's in a pricing model or setting a mortality basis, is something that's much more fundamental to the work that we do. Um, so I'm strongly of the opinion that making accurate predictions is really the goal of actuarial modeling. Um, I think common actuarial techniques which are applied for predictive purposes, these should be familiar to everyone, generalized linear models, even, those, even though those could be interpreted as um, explanatory models, are generally applied by actuaries to make predictions. Um, if you think about in reserving your chain ladder model and your born head of Ferguson, those are really predictive models. You're trying to predict what will the, the values in the next diagonal of your triangle be, what is the aggregate value of outstanding claims. And then lastly, the Lee Carter model from life insurance. That's a predictive model. You're not trying to explain how mortality is evolving over time. What you're trying to do is say, what will mortality be next year? So that's, that's quite a core distinction. And because in our view, we favor the right-hand side of the, of the slide, which is making predictions, we're less worried about model risk posed by the fact that you can't understand anything about the world because we don't really believe that's something that you're trying to do in actuarial modeling. So here's our formal definition of a model. So there's a formula, but we'll go through it, in, we'll go through it slowly and in detail. Um, this is how we represent a predictive model. And what we're saying is a model is a function of all of these um, items, which we'll explain um, one by one, and that gives you a prediction, y hat. So what are these components that we believe comprise a model? The first one is x, which is really the data that you're using to fit your model and the data that you're using to make predictions. So x is a matrix of known variables. In regression modeling, you might call that covariates. In the machine learning literature, you might call that features. And generally what you do, whether if you're building a traditional actuarial model or if you are um, building a machine learning model, is you'll modify x using a set of functions t to derive a new set of variables. So if you think about it, if you're building a pricing GLM, you might look at the interaction of age and gender, or you might look at the three-way interaction of age, gender, and marital status. Um, and that process of combining variables, of doing something to the variables, is called feature engineering in the machine learning literature. So what we're representing here is that you have t, which is a set of functions which define the features that are going into your model. And then probably one of the most important choices you make when you build a model is deciding what class of algorithms are you going to use. Often when you build an actuarial model, that set of algorithms is already predefined for you. If you're reserving, you use the chain ladder. If you're building a pricing model, you use GLMs. But I think as actuaries get more familiar with machine learning, you start to realize that that class of algorithms is much broader. It can include things like neural networks or gradient boosted trees. And some algorithms will then require an explicit model definition which we're calling E. That model definition might be which variables do you select in your final model? Uh, 
what are the loss development factors that you've chosen. Lastly, you'll parameterize your model and you'll have a parameter set theta um, and the way that you'll derive that is generally by minimizing some sort of loss function or by maximizing the likelihood of your observations using maximum likelihood estimation. And combining all of these things together gives us our formal de definition of a model. So a model is a function of the data you put in, what you do with it, um, the type of model algorithm and um, explicit model definition that you've chosen and the parameters and what you get out are predictions, which is y-hat. So this is the paradigm of traditional actuarial modeling. So you can see it's pretty much the same formula, but we're going to run through what actuaries have generally always done. And, and like we mentioned before, this is going to be a springboard to see what can actuaries do with machine learning and deep learning. So Generally, in actuarial modeling, x, which is your variables, um, those are relatively simple. If you, think about if you think about reserving, that's generally just the past values of um, your incurred claims or your paid claims. Um, in pricing, that might be a little bit of a bigger data input and might cover, say, up to 50 variables or so. Um, the functions that you'll use to derive new variables to, or, or to perform feature engineering in actuarial modeling, you'll generally select um, these functions relatively simply. It might be the identity function, which means you'll just take the variable as is. It might be a spline or a step function. And then something else that you could do in, in defining the features that you'll use, like we mentioned, are, are building interactions. I think probably the biggest um, defining characteristic for me of a lot of actuarial models is the model specification. You can see over here that we're saying that your model specification basically is the sum of your variables multipli multiplied by a coefficient. And what that's really saying is that actuarial models are generally linear models. So think of GLMs. Um, for some reason, actuaries have really taken to this for, for short-term pricing. But if you think about reserving, most reserving algorithms can also be represented in, in, in terms of a GLM. Um, and the, the majority of the model specification that needs to go in is just choosing what are those variables XI that you'll put in. I think, as we've, as we've mentioned, they're, they're good alternatives to linear models, um, and some of those alternatives, even within the statistical world, are generalized additive models where you model smooth functions of your input variables, um, but we're not going to discuss that in too much detail. And the way that you derive your parameter set is generally not something that... Um, we pay too much attention to. We generally know what are the correct estimators of, um, of your parameters, maybe thinking about your chain ladder algorithm, or you let Willis Towers Watson emblem software fit your GLM for you. Um, but basically what happens is there is some sort of loss function or likelihood function, which you either try to minimize or maximize respectively, and that gives you your parameter set. I think Something just uh, referring back to the issue of explaining versus predicting, because actuaries don't spend too much time thinking about the relationships in that input matrix X, there's automatically no causal inferences that you can make on the model parameters. Because, uh, for example, there might be confounders in there. Um, and what that means to say is, even though you're fitting an interpretable, mo interpretable model, you should be very careful about making any inferences about the world from that model, um, because you haven't done part of the basic steps of causal inference, which is saying what is the relationship between your variables. And then lastly, uh, the quality of your model will be tested in various ways, um, but you don't usually focus on predictive performance on unseen data, even though that is slowly starting to become a more popular thing. I've never seen anyone in a reserving exercise try to predict the next diagonal 
um, using last development factors fit on the previous year's data. I suppose in, in reserving you might say that's what an AVE does, but it's almost it's never couched in terms of uh, predictive performance. So that's our view on traditional actuarial modeling, and I hope I haven't been too negative um, about that. Um, but let's move on to machine learning models. Um, and here's where we, we start on the journey away from what's so familiar towards something that maybe um, is a little bit more exotic. Uh, we have the same model structure. So there's your input data, there's your set of functions. But I think the biggest change when you start to move towards machine learning models is the much bigger choice of algorithms that you can choose. So instead of focusing on linear models or generalized linear models, um, often what you'll do when you build a machine learning model is focus on things like gradient boosted trees or neural networks. Um, other very successful algorithms are the support vector machine um, and the random forest classifier. Um, and what you find with these machine learning models is they're often combined with very extensive feature engineering, which involve complicated functions in T. So um, one interesting discussion that we had when we were formulating these ideas back at work is that you even have programs which can automate your feature engineering for you. So they'll specify um, all four-way interactions, um, square all of your input variables, take the log of them, and combine all of that together. So if you, if you originally started off with, say, 50 data fields, you might land up with, say, um, 2,000 data fields actually going into your model. Um, the structure of the model is generally determined by your class of algorithms, which means to say that you don't have to go ahead and specify which of these many variables that you're inputting into your model are actually the ones that you care about. You don't do um, variable selection, you just allow your algor algorithm to take care of it for you. And that's also something that's quite foreign to actuarial modeling, where you'll think very carefully about each variable that you actually input into your model. Um, and generally, a a another difference is you won't bother specifying a stochastic data generating process. So if you think about it, if you're fitting a frequency GLM, given that this is a short-term session, um, you know that you fit using a Poisson model. If you're fitting severity, you'll think about using a gamma distribution for your severities. In machine learning, you generally don't even talk about the stochastic data generating process. And that, 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 that's probably another one of the key characteristics of a machine learning model. So, so let's run through some of the, some of the core differences. Um, from what, what you get if you build an actuarial model. Machine learning algorithms will generally produce a highly nonlinear model. So if you think about a GLM, it's very clear what's the contribution um, of each variable. And if you increase that variable's contribution a little bit, you'll be moving in kind of a linear way. In machine learning models, you have much more complicated functions being modeled. And what that automatically allows for is um, greater predictive accuracy, but at the cost of models being much more complicated and less transparent than um, actuarial models. A another different aspect is that when you start fitting machine learning models, you might find that many machine learning models actually have similar predictive performance, um, even though the actual model itself is extremely different. So that means that um, even though your, your overall predictive accuracy between different machine learning models can be quite similar, what the model will predict for an individual model point or for an individual policy can be quite different. Um, and that, that's almost a strange contradiction of machine learning modeling. You have a very accurate overall model, but the, the predictions, which is, I guess, what we actually care about, say, if you're pricing a, uh, uh, a policy, um, might not be the same between those similarly performing models. 
Um, and something that we've discovered and, and people are discussing more and more, I'll, I'll be talking about this in a little bit more detail this afternoon in, in that session, is that you may have very high quality um, predictions from machine learning models um, at an individual policy level, but in aggregate, your predictions might be biased. So if you fit a frequency GLM, you might get a very accurate prediction of the frequency for each individual model, but the aggregate frequency of the portfolio is not going to be reproduced. And that can be quite an insidious and dangerous problem. I'm seeing one frown in the audience, so, so maybe we can discuss that in the questions, but that can be one quite insidious um, problem with machine learning models. Um, so basically, to summarize, machine learning models are complicated because you have got a, a, a much broader class of algorithms you can choose from, which lead to highly complex and um, highly predictive models. Um, but you have an underdetermination of these models. In other words, it's hard to pick the best one of these. So moving from machine learning to deep learning, um, what we'll be discussing in this slide is what, is the, what are the classic issues that um, you have in the machine learning literature with the machine learning process? And you find um, three arguments put forward uh, in, in the machine learning literature where they have issues with the whole idea of feature engineering. So just, just to take a step back, you'll remember that in your definition of machine learning models, we said a key characteristics of these models is that there's a lot of feature engineering. There's a lot of transformation of the variables that you're putting into your model before you actually under, undertake the modeling process. And you find three arguments against feature engineering in the machine learning literature. The first is the complexity argument, then the effort argument, and then the expert knowledge argument. And let's run through each one of these in turn. The complexity argument basically says that in complex problems, it becomes very difficult to perform feature engineering. So think of, uh, for example, if you asked to build an image classifier with a thousand different categories of images. If you focus on one category of images, it can be quite easy to say, okay, you want to identify a plane. Does it have wings? Does it have wheels? Does it have a tail? that's probably a plane. But if you have to do that for a thousand images and then write the algorithms which will identify those features, that becomes an extremely difficult problem. Um, the effort argument is that it require, when you start having to do feature engineering on a large number of categories, you need a large, a, a large amount of effort, a large number of man hours in order to um, specify those algorithms. And lastly, the expert knowledge argument is that feature engineering often depends on a suitable body of prior knowledge telling you how do you solve this problem. So if you think about it as actuaries, we have a lot of that expert knowledge already. If you, if you look at a reserving triangle, you're not going to sit and puzzle over what do you do with this, you'll derive the chain ladder factors. But if someone gives you five terabytes of telematics data, you might start struggling to say, how do we actually analyze this? What do we do with this? Um, and you need some really specialized knowledge that in certain areas in actuarial science has not been developed. So let's think about, let's elaborate on that. What is the relevance of these three arguments for actuarial modeling? So are actuarial data really all that complex? If you think about traditional data, generally not. You've got a couple of data points collected for each policy. You have a couple of data points in your triangle and that you then need to project. Um, and again, like we said, there's many years of collective professional and institutional experience in how do you do actuarial modeling. But I think why these three arguments are becoming more applicable to actuarial science and why we start to need to think about A, what the arguments mean, and B, what is the answer, which is deep learning, is that 
A lot of techniques for large-scale actuarial modeling have not been well developed. Again, using reserving as an example, often what you do is you look at triangles individually. But there's not all that many techniques for looking, say, at six or seven lines of business in aggregate and hopefully coming up with more um, precise predictions. Um, there are some techniques. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to put up a straw man. So, for example, looking at paid and incurred data simultaneously with the Munich chain ladder technique would be one example. But in general, techniques for large-scale forecasting and actuarial models haven't been developed that well. I think complex data and high-frequency data is becoming more common. If you think about telematics, data from wearables um, or individual claims reserving data. And then lastly, um, I think another reason why these three arguments are actually relevant is a lot of recent papers have shown how deep learning models can beat traditional actuarial models relatively easily. So you see that even with all of our expert knowledge, which I'm acknowledging um, is is, is a strong body of knowledge and, and helps us in practice, there might still be better ways of doing things if your goal is predictive accuracy. And that's really what leads us to deep learning, um, which we'll discuss. Uh, let, let's discuss the representation here. What deep learning does is it says, don't bother doing feature engineering either. So what we said is, um, when you have machine learning, you, have, you specify a class of algorithms and that takes care of model specification for you. The whole idea of deep learning is let something else, let an algorithm take care of your feature engineering for you. And that's a concept called representation learning. And what we'll quickly look at in, the, in some of the next slides are some interesting examples of representation learning from the deep learning literature. So when you are building um, a natural language processing model, what you care about a lot is attributing some sort of meaning to the words that you have coming in through the document. This is a really brilliant approach um, called Word to Vec by Mikhailov et al. Um, and over here, what they've done is they've taken their model, which they've trained on a huge um, corpus of textual data, and they're showing what has the model learned in terms of um, city capitals, which you've got running down the right-hand part of the slide, and countries on the left-hand part of the slide. And this is a very high-dimensional model, meaning to say you might have... 1,200 attributes for each word. So what they've done is they've projected this into a smaller dimension using principal components analysis. And you get this fascinating graph where you have all of the countries running down the left-hand part of the slide, and you've got all of the capital cities neatly stacked up over there. So you can see that what this algorithm has learned is some sort of new mathematical space where the semantic meaning, the semantics of what these words actually provide to you has been captured really well. That's not something you could do with traditional machine learning techniques, but it's something you could only do with representation learning. This is another example from, um, this is on sentence embedding from the neural machine translation literature. And what they've done is they're trying to translate these sentences, say, from English into French. Um, I should say maybe this is uh, the paper that underlies Google's machine translation system. So if you go to translate.google.com, this is the algorithm that it will be running. And what they've done is they've also built an algorithm to encode sentences into a mathematical space. You can see um, this cluster of sentences are all about a person receiving a card, and this is all about that person giving the card. So it's managed to differentiate between sentences where the person is the subject and the person is the object in this mathematical space. Again, that's a type of feature engineering that I think people would struggle to do very much.
And then and a last example of representation learning, this is from um, the, probably one of the cutting edge models for image recognition called a convolutional neural network. And what this is trying to show is what is the neural network learnt in each layer. Um, so in the first layer, which is very um, much closer to the data than the later layers, you can see that the network has basically learnt just simple shapes and shading. And those simple shapes become more complicated in the next layer of the network. And lastly, over here, what the network has actually come up with is people detectors um, and detectors of much more complicated patterns. So basically what that tells you is, is that what deep learning is doing um, on a fundamental level is capturing patterns from the data, patterns that are actually quite meaningful to us as people. Um, and that's something that you can't do with traditional machine learning models. So that's great. We've seen a couple of examples outside of the actuarial domain. What I've tried to collect on this slide is um, going down different examples of types of neural networks and going across different activities that actuaries might engage in. So for example, pricing, reserving, analysis of telematics, um, etc. And what I've shown is some of the research that's popping up in each of these cells of this table. And you can see that most of it's been conducted since around 2017, um, which is when deep learning started to make an impact on actuarial work. And you can see it's, it's really starting to mushroom up. Um, and I think the slide's already out of date that I've missed one or two papers written in 2019. So that gives you an idea of where deep learning models are starting to be applied for actuarial work. So really to summarize, um, this is the journey that we've been on in this section of the presentation. We've gone from traditional actuarial modeling, where you specify um, models explicitly using linear models, um, and you can interpret your regression coefficients. We've then gone to machine learning models, where you specify a class of algorithms, and that takes care of your model specification for you, and we've arrived at deep learning models, where not only is your um, model specification taken care of you, for you, but your feature engineering is also taken care of by the algorithm. And in doing so, you can come up with much more complicated representations of the data than people could possibly put together, which leads to a lot more accuracy. And then lastly, how, how is that done? All three of these approaches generally use some sort of loss function, which measures either how likely is your model, if you're using maximum likelihood, or how far away are your predictions from the actual data. Um, and that um, loss function is something that we'll be talking about a lot in the next slide um, as we move through, uh, sorry, in the next sections as we start discussing um, what the risks are. What we've discussed till now is quite theoretically just looking at models in isolation. But I think for anyone who's worked in an insurance company or in a consulting environment knows that models are it's not just about the models, there's a lot more. Um, and what we've just tried to lay out on this slide is five steps of a typical modeling process. So some of these will relate to the model. So for example, the design of the model, which is choosing all of the, those components of the model M. The calibration of the model, which is determining the parameters theta, which depend on the class of algorithms and the loss function. But then there'll be some more qualitative steps in the modeling process. Validation, which is assessing model accuracy um, how robust is the model and is it suitable for decision making um, and actuaries have come up with all sorts of heuristics about what is a suitable model or not but generally not heuristics that relate to um, quantifying predictive performance 
Um, another step will be implementation, so that's the technical configuration and setup of the model on a suitable platform so it can actually, say, rate your policies. And then lastly, the running of the model, which is producing model outputs um, wire hat. So th this is, again, a simplified representation, and you might find, say, a feedback loop from step three to back to step one and step two. Um, but this is really to acknowledge that um, modeling is not just about defining models in a technical sense. Um, and with that, we, we conclude the first section in which, just to, just to summarize, is moving from traditional modeling to deep learning. And I'll hand over to Nikolai to start discussing model risk management. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming to our talk. Uh, I hope you're still with us. Um, maybe I can summarize sort of the key takeaways from the first section. Um, that's the level that I basically understand it is if we move from traditional actuarial modeling to machine learning to deep learning model, there are three things that we have to remember that are changing. The first one in machine learning model, we've got an implicit model specification that means moving away from linear models to nonlinear models. That is one key aspect. The second key aspect to remember is if we move from machine learning to deep learning models, then we've got representation learning. So we are not doing feature engineering. We actually let the model specify the features that we want to use. And the third aspect is the use of the loss function. I think it's other techniques as well in terms of splitting training and test data and so on. But we, in our speak, when we speak about model risk management for deep learning models, we always say it's the loss function that is the main difference. Okay, so these are the three main things to remember for the next section. Um, now we want to do a crash course on model risk management. And it's a topic that I'm always surprised is not really discussed uh, in South Africa. And I'm not sure my experience is that a lot of companies in South Africa haven't really got a mature model risk management framework. Um, I think it's completely different compared to the UK or also to Germany, uh, where I see companies spending a lot of resources and a lot of time in terms of doing model risk management. So I'll, I'll try to do an introduction in four slides to model risk management. <laughs> if you're interested, I can recommend two papers by the Institute and Faculties as a working group on model risk management. Um, they've done two papers, 2015 and 2017, and they're really good. So really extensive, discussing roles and responsibilities, discovering the governance around models. Uh, I think the first paper even includes a fully formulated model risk policy that you can use as a template for your company. Okay. So in that paper from uh, the Model Risk Working Group, there are a lot of case studies trying to actually come to terms with what is model risk. Uh, and I want to start off by showing you two examples. Uh, the first one is quite prominent, which is the long-term capital management hedge fund, um, which was bailed out or had to be bailed out uh, with 3.6 billion US dollars uh, in 1998 after Russia had practically defaulted on all their bonds. And what happened there is the fund was created in 1993. They had phenomenal success in the first two years, showing annual returns above a 40%. And then they realized margins were getting smaller. They had to take more leverage positions. They were starting to try to get returns from uh, merger arbitrage. Um, and they had quite sophisticated risk models to assess the risks for the business that they were doing. But they were surprised when Russia defaulted, which had a big impact on the equity markets, both in, in Europe and the US. 
Um, and they basically lost all of their capital or 90% of their capital in, in, in one year's time and then had to be bailed out. So this is basically uh, a model risk in terms of inappropriate use of the model, but it's also a model risk in terms of uh, inadequate parameterization of the model in terms of not allowing for these high percentiles in terms of changes in the market conditions. So I think that is quite interesting. The The other one uh, is the JP Morgan London Whale, also quite prominent. Uh, it happened between 2010 and 2012. In 2010, uh, JP Morgan used derivatives to basically protect the company against a severe downturn in the economic conditions by investing in uh, credit default swaps or synthesized credit default swaps portfolios. What they realized is actually that with these portfolios, you can earn a lot of money. Um, and they did that by shortening uh, that portfolio. That means they were betting on um, that no economic downturn happens. And they've been making good profits on these products. And the exposure built up to 157 billion pound in early 2012. That is quite a lot. Um, and then in 2012, we all remember probably the European sovereign debt crisis occurred and they lost six billion pounds in, in that one year. Um, what is interesting in that case is if you look at sort of the documents and they are available publicly, is that risk limits had been ignored in that process. Also that the risk models used to assess the risk has been redefined in the process. Uh, basically coming up with a low risk estimate for the transactions that they were doing. And what is more is that in, in that development phase of the risk models, they had a spreadsheet error underestimating the, the risk by 50%. And I think so, usually when you see those big crises, a lot of things go wrong, right? So I'm not saying that a model risk is the only root cause of these things happening. It's also definitely lack of governance and not a mature risk management framework and so on. Um, but model risks contribute to these crises happening. So I think these were two examples. I want to move on to basically a more formal definition. Um, and I think I'm going to read it to you. So the potential loss an institution may occur as a consequence of decisions that could be principally based on the output of internal models due to errors in the development, implementation, or use of such models. That is model risk. Uh, and it's a definition that we took from a EU framework directive on model risk, and I think it's widely used in the, in the literature. I think it's actually quite good. What we prefer when we do risk management is to bring every risk into a structure that speaks about the cause, event, and impact of a risk. And only once we've identified all three aspects of a risk, we actually speak about a risk. So when somebody says cyber risk, for me that is not a risk because I don't understand what we're actually talking about. What are the causes, what is the event, and what is the impact that we're talking about? Uh, but I like the definition and I think it's easy to rearrange um, the, the text definition into these three parts. So the cause that we're speaking about are errors in the development, implementation, or use of models. The event is always a decision that is made, um, and the decision are usually based on more things than just the model output, but the model output informs the decision in a certain way. And we're speaking about the potential loss that an institution might incur as a consequence of that decision. So that for me is model risk. Um, maybe as an aside, 
Um, there are different risk taxonomies. So risk taxonomy is basically how you structure and organize your risks, top down from capital risk into market and credit risk, and then further in credit risk and investment credit and insurance credit risk and so on. So if you apply risk taxonomies, they are often inconsistent in terms of what are they generalizing about. When we speak about model risk, it's basically that we are speaking about the root cause for a certain loss happening and that lies in the inappropriate use of a model or errors that were made in the model. And you see, if I focus on the impact, I could also define a risk category that is called reputational risk. Right? So, and when you have both in your taxonomy, you've got model risk and reputational risk in your taxonomy, where do you allocate your risk into, into which one when both are basically impacted? So it is important when we speak about risk taxonomies that they are consistent in a way that every risk can only go into one category. Uh, but I think that's more of an aside. Now the next step is basically we want to drill down in terms of model risk and actually define our risk taxonomy uh, in, in that structure underneath. And we want to look at two things. One is the structural risk and the operational risk. The structural risk are the ones that are relating to the model itself. And when we go back to the modeling process, as Ron has presented, we're basically speaking about the steps one, two, three. Um, whereas the operational risk are relating more to the steps four and five, so the actual implementation, what are we doing, the model validation, and so on. So under structural risk, we look at specification risk, uh, which is the specification of the model. Uh, and here the risk can be that we haven't chosen the right class of algorithms or specific algorithms if we speak about traditional actuarial modeling. Uh, parameter risk is estimation errors typically. Um, we've got numerical and simulation errors if you're not choosing the right size of your seed or whatever, but we're not focusing too much on that. In terms of the operational risk, um, we need to look at the data risk. So is the data fit for purpose? Is it sufficient? Does it have sufficient quality? Um, do we have enough data to actually do the calculations? We look at decision risks, so uh, these are the things around the inappropriate use of a model that we are basically using a model for purposes that were not originally intended. And we've got other process risks like the IT implementation that the models are hosted uh, on servers that are not fit to run it or whatever can happen there and not password protected, so other operational risk around it. So uh, why, why is that helpful? Because I think if you define your risk taxonomy in a granular way, it will help you actually identify risks around your model. So imagine we'll speak about the risk management process just now, but basically when you identify risk, you look at a certain model that you have in your business and then you go through, is there a specification risk? Are we using this model correctly for what it's intended originally? How do we define the parameters? Uh, are we running it correctly? Is it implemented correctly? Have we trained our board of directors correctly? And, and so on. So I think um, a structured risk taxonomy will help you identify the correct risks that surround the model that you're using. And now we speak uh, quickly about the risk management process. So I'm, I'm sure most of you will have seen this before. It's, it's quite generic in terms of you need to identify the risk, you assess the risk, you manage, monitor, and report the risk. But what does it mean specifically for model risk? Um, it is basically how do you identify model risk? So what most companies use is called a model inventory, where they try to document and list every model that fits the definition that we've seen um, 
in the presentation so far. That is used in the business, in any business process. And you usually document a couple of other things uh, for each of the models, like who's the model owner, who's the model user, who's the model reviewer, are there any planned developments around the model, um, when was the model last reviewed, and so on. So that is a model inventory where you start documenting all your models. Um, the assessment phase for model risk can be done in, in many forms, and usually it's actually a, a two-step two process. The, the definition of a model that we're using is quite wide, so you'll probably end up with an Excel spreadsheet that has a lot of entries and a lot of models that you're using, but most of them are probably not material in terms of your risk management framework. Uh, and that means you classify most of them as immaterial and want to focus and apply the risk management framework on the ones that are actually relevant for you. Um, and so you do like a high-level assessment in terms of are they relevant or not, and then you proceed with the ones that you think are relevant. Um, that in itself is, of course, a risk in terms of the classification. Then the next step is the assessment, and you can do it from a qualitative perspective, semi-qualitative or quantitative, and what I mean by that is you either say the, that model has a high risk and or low risk. That would be like a red, amber, green that you assign to each model. Um, or you do it like a lot of operational risks are quantified in terms of inherent and residual frequency and severity and you assign ratings from one to five and then come up with a residual risk score for the models in terms of multiplying frequency and severity. That is what I usually see in the market. But you could also do it in a quantitative way that you basically try to find out, do scenario analysis, how, how wrong can I get the parameters that I use for my calibration of the model, uh, what are the decisions that I make, what would be the financial impact if I do a sensitivity analysis on the parameters in terms of the decisions, how wrong can I get it, or you do full stochastic modeling. I think, so there are various ways to assess model risk, and um, even though I'm an actuary, I'm probably, in terms of my experience, more of a risk manager. The important thing is that you do it, <laughs> and, and not so much how you do it. Um, especially since the assessment needs to be consistent to the management phase. So management is the topic of risk appetite. So what is your risk appetite for model risk? And you need to express your risk appetite that is consistent with your assessment, and that's the important part or said the other way around, you need to assess the risk the way that your board is likely to express their risk appetite. That means if you assess your risk in a qualitative way with red, amber, green, and your board tells you, well, once every 10 years, we're uh, accepting to have a P&L loss of X uh, because of a model error, then the two are inconsistent, right? And you will never be able to say whether the model risk that you currently have is in your risk appetite or outside of your risk appetite. So the important part here is assessment and management of risks for model risk needs to be consistent. <coughs> and the risk appetite needs to be explicit. Um, then the next step in the process is the monitoring of model risk. I think that is done through regular reporting. So if a risk is outside of your risk appetite, you define management actions. Those management actions can be a peer review, can be uh, remediation actions on insufficient data quality, whatever you've defined. Um, but basically the next step is then a regular monitoring of the things that you've agreed to do to manage your, your model risk. And the whole thing needs to be embedded in the governance structure of an organization with the adequate reporting so that there can be formal delegation of um, 
model risk responsibilities down from the board to an appropriate committee and then a reporting back up again um, to have the whole process basically embedded in your organization. So I think all of that is fairly standard in terms of risk management. Um, what was surprising for me when we worked uh, on the topic is that nothing in this whole risk management framework really needs to change for deep learning models. <laughs> so if you go through it, we said the, the main difference are implicit specification, representation learning, loss function. Um, that is fine. All of this can still apply, right? So both the risk taxonomy in terms of looking at structural risk, looking at operational risk, the risk management framework, the tools that we use in terms of a model inventory, uh, the governance structure that we want to use, the way that we can express our risk appetite, all of that still holds for machine learning and deep learning models. So basically I've done a couple of slides, but I think they are actually not different for these kind of models. And for me that was surprising. I would have expected sort of more. Um, but where sort of the key differences are, are not so much in the risk management framework, not so much in terms of what the second line of defense is doing and how the reporting to the board works, but what the first line of defense actually needs to do in order to mitigate model risk, which are the actual controls around the models that need to change. So we, we try to basically come up with typical controls for traditional actuarial models um, that are used today um, because I think that's where we will see the change in the actual controls and how we perform them. So I've left off the, um, the two of the risks, one was the other operational risk and the, uh, and the sorry, I have to go back, I forgot what it was called, <laughs> the numerical and simulation errors. Um, and we, we put down a couple of controls. So on specification, I think what you need to do is when you have a model, you need a clear definition of the problem in the business that you want to solve. So what is the purpose of uh, the model? You need to document that and then you need to basically review are using the right algorithms, does the model have the right architecture and so on. So everything around specification of risk is usually controlled by documentation, peer reviews and the experience that we've built up in the actual profession around which model to use for what purpose. The parameter risk is calculating confidence intervals, sensitivities and doing stress tests, uh, reasonability checks in terms of um, um, when I change this parameter, how will the output change and, and so on, right? Um, the data risk is probably a topic in itself um, where we look at measuring data quality finding out what does it mean when we say the data is sufficient for the purpose. I think that's also interesting because now there's a GI requirement for the have to have an opinion on sufficiency of data and data quality. Uh, and how are we doing that? Are we doing that in using metrics that we can easily update or are we just saying we think it's sufficient because it reconciles <laughs> the financials? Um, so data risk is definitely a topic where we put in a lot of controls around the models that we have in the first line of defense. What we haven't done in the, in the paper, and that might be an idea for additional work, is actually look at, for machine learning models, we might be using different type of data as an input. We might be using unstructured data. Um, we might just be using a lot more data. Um, and to apply sort of the traditional data governance criteria on the new types of data 
and basically define what does it mean the data is of sufficient quality if we're looking at image data or natural language uh, could, could be an interesting topic because I think it will become relevant um, in the application in, in insurance companies. So th that one we're not looking at, but decision risk as well. Decision risk is a lot around validating the output. Um, so um, defining clear performance metrics upfront for the performance of a model and then seeing does the output actually meet that. Uh, also identifying areas for human intervention upfront. So where can you change something if you are the model owner or the model user? Um, all of that, I think, is our controls that are implemented around mitigating the decision risk. Okay. So that was uh, the quick introduction into model risk. Oh, quick. <laughs> it wasn't actually very quick. Um, <laughs> I thought I'd spoken for five minutes. Um, okay, so this is now the actual interesting section. Quickly to recap. Differences between machine learning and deep learning model, I think we've spoken about that. Implicit model specification, use of a loss function, representation learning. Um, then I think one of the buzzwords always associated with machine learning and deep learning models is it's a black box, right? We, since we've given more and more into the model, like the choice of the specific algorithms and the feature engineering are now done by the model, they it feels like it's a black box and we actually don't know what's happening. And there's a fantastic paper, I think, from Lipton from 2016, who's trying to basically find out what are the different concepts that we use when we speak about uh, interpretability of models as opposed to the black boxness of, of models. And he's saying there's basically two concepts. There is the transparency to understand how the model works and he, and there's the second aspect, which he calls post hoc explanations, is basically the question, what else can we learn from the model? So there are two questions, how does the model work? And the second question is, um, what else can we learn from it? And he further then decomposes the transparency aspect of it into three aspects. One is simulatability, which is basically being able to understand what the model does when you think about the model. It's like a like a visual or textual representation and you understand what the model does. Uh, so that's simulatability. Decomposability is basically inspecting uh, a single parameters, single data inputs and so on, and they all make sense. And we've got algorithmic transparency, which is basically understanding the algorithms that we are using and what they're doing in the model. And I think to summarize where we've got issues with deep learning model is around the first and the third. So decomposability, since we always have uh, the feature engineering when we understand the features quite well or we, can, we are able to isolate the features that the model is using, I think in terms of decomposability, we don't have an issue. In terms of simulatability, we do have an issue. We can't sit and think about a deep learning model and in terms of going through the model and understanding what it does. Um, but I think that is also a risk that we have in traditional actuarial modeling when you think about very complex GLMs that are using a lot of factors or when you think about complex capital models. So this is an aspect that is shared, I think, with part of the traditional actuarial modeling, but it's still an issue uh, that needs to be managed properly. 
Uh, I think where machine learning and deep learning models are a lot worse is in terms of algorithmic transparency. So while we do understand which algorithms are used, we don't really understand today, I think, what they're doing and how they're influencing the output. And there are various techniques that can be used in, in deep learning modeling uh, that actually have a major impact <coughs> in terms of the output. So Ron is probably able to share a lot of experience around that. But I think it's, as I said, more a matter of experience. It feels like we as actuaries need to learn this. If we think we want to review one day or be, do a peer review on a deep learning model, you need to understand model architecture for deep learning models. You need to understand the techniques and build up that same experience or expertise that allow you to judge traditional actual models also on the deep learning side. So this was the first aspect. I'll do the second aspect, post hoc interpretability. Uh, as well. So we actually don't think there's a big difference for machine learning or deep learning models um, in terms of extracting additional information that give you comfort that the model is accurate in terms of using examples, in terms of local explanations, in terms of visualizations. All of these techniques have been developed or are in development for deep learning models as well. So I don't think that's a big difference. The biggest difference, I really have to speed up, hey, <laughs> is for me bias. Uh, and that is a, a problem. I think we've discussed this for a very long time that we haven't really found a solution for. So we had the Amazon example, but we might also have an example where we think the deep learning models is using features that are illegal to use. For example, gender in Europe is illegal as a pricing factor to use. Uh, or using a close proxy for gender by, for example, looking at motor vehicle utilization as a proxy for gender. Um, so what do you need to do, I think, to, in order to protect yourself against bias in your deep learning models is you first have to define what you don't want to discriminate against. And I think that needs to be an explicit process where you say the following dimensions are for us not usable or not used in, in any differentiating. And that can be because they are unethical or illegal or just unwanted for whatever reason. Um, but the problem is, if you've got a deep learning model, you might not be able to actually test that there's bias in the outputs. So if you have a rich data set which actually distinguishes on those criteria, yes, you can test it. If you can reconstruct proxies for the criteria that you don't want to discriminate against. Yes, you can test your output. But if you don't have that, you basically are left with an output and you're not sure whether the, the output has an unwanted bias in it. And I think that is a, a big problem. So the problem with the bias is detecting it. I think once you've detected it, there are techniques for compensating for the bias in the output. And there, um, we've got two ideas around how to do that. It's more that you might not always be able to, to detect the bias in your data, even if you have an explicitly defined list of things that you don't want to discriminate against. Um, then there's also the example, I'll do this very quickly. So from the picture, you would think this is a husky, what a machine learning model might learn if they're looking at different uh, types of breeds of dogs is that wherever there's snow in the picture that there's a husky. 
right? So if you change it, because the, it's so closely related to the training data set, and if you always have pictures of huskies in the snow, they might actually learn that wherever there is snow, there is a husky, and if you have a different dog in the snow, they might actually think it's a husky. So this kind of generalization, um, some of the deep learning models still struggles with, and I think we as humans are still better at checking uh, generalizations um, than some deep learning models. We have thought about it. We currently don't see a lot of application or risks in the current applications of deep learning models in, in insurance, so this might not be such a big problem. Oops. Um, the, so basically to summarize, we have an issue in terms of simulatability, but uh, traditional actual models, the more complex they get, might have as well. We definitely have an issue in terms of algorithmic transparency, but we might learn and gain the experience actually how to deal with it. We definitely have a, an issue in terms of bias, in terms of detecting bias, not so much in terms of compensating for it. Um, and these are the main issues that we see. So we do think that deep learning models require changes in the controls and the things that you do in order uh, to mitigate those risks. But there might be a saving grace, and that, that is what Ron has referred to, that we think there might be a shift in the modeling paradigm from description or causal explanation to predictive accuracy. And while I think there always needs to be both, the question is, would you sacrifice some causal explanation or some quality of your causal explanation if you could improve the predictive accuracy of the model? And I think yes is the answer. Um, and so we see deep learning models outperforming traditional actual models in terms of predictive accuracy. Um, and we actually think that the explicit definition of a loss function and the split in terms of splitting out a training and test set are things that we could do in actual traditional actual modeling as well and gain some of the benefits there. Um, then the last slide for me is basically that we do have an issue that the loss function, if it's specified on a very high level, doesn't give us one unique best model. And it's usually giving us a whole set of models that are sufficiently good. And that is unintuitive in a way if these models have very different features and you are basically left with the same predictive accuracy but a whole total different causal explanation of the world. And there are ways maybe to enhance the loss function and add additional aspects into the loss function uh, that can remedy the situation. Then I'll hand over to Ron again for the last slide. Thanks, Nicolas. So just um, some of the last issues to be aware of um, when you are working with machine learning and also deep learning models is the difference in how you train these models and recalibrate them over time. At training time, um, when you calibrate a deep learning model, a lot of the parameters that you get are stochastic. In other words, um, the training itself is a stochastic process and you'll get a slightly different answer each time that you actually retrain the model. Um, and this is because that really effectively, you could say, it induces a, de a dependence on the random seed which is underlying your random um, number generator. So that's something to be very careful of, especially if you're trying to do first-line risk management of these models. When you run the model again, you might not get to the same answer. and You might need to explain to your chief actuary or to your CEO why your performance is getting worse. 
Um, some ways of getting around that is ensembling models. So in other words, you fit uh, deep learning, say five or six deep learning models and take the average result. That seems to stabilize things quite a bit, but that hasn't really been studied in detail in the literature yet. Another issue to think about is when you recalibrate these models, um, uh, a good um, property of actuarial models that you'd like to see is stability over time. When you feed them slightly perturbed data, say with updated experience, you'd like your predictions to remain relatively the same, but the consistency of neural networks in particular over time has not been researched in detail. So you, you probably want to use a stable technique um, as a control to make sure that the data itself is not causing the model to, to fluctuate wildly, and if you're seeing that, then, then that's something that's problematic. So two quick examples. Here's the short-term content that you've all been waiting for. Um, and this is um, from a French motor third-party liability data set, um, which has been quite studied in the literature. Um, basically, what people have found is that machine learning models outperform GLMs on this data set quite a lot. And what we've done, um, this is the raw frequencies of the data plotted against driver age and population density in each area. And what we've got on the left-hand part of the slide is what has the neural network learnt about this data in the last layer? I should say this is a neural network that achieves very high predictive accuracy on um, this particular data set. Um, and what you can compare is what has the neural network learnt um, in terms of the shape of um, what the risk looks like versus what the data says. So a lot of what it has learnt is in line with intuitions. So um, it, you have higher frequencies of claim in higher population density areas um, and your risk is very high at younger ages and decreases um, as you get older. Um, I think what you see over here is that the, at the oldest ages, the model, the neural network is slightly out of line with what you have in the data and that needs some further investigation. So you see the immediate, u immediate utility of inspecting the learned representations of the model um, in that it gives you a warning sign if something might be going wrong. What you might want to do over here is mod modify the model at the oldest ages or maybe just revert to using a GLM for your pricing for your oldest policyholders. Um, we found that on this particular French motor third-party liability data set, there wasn't much ability to check biases. Um, but what you could consider further than what we've shown over here is if you run through all of the major learned representations of the model, would you expect those to generalize well to a new data set? And here's some live content that maybe you weren't expecting in a short-term session. What we're showing is um, uh, a neural network model for forecasting mortality for multiple populations. Um, and if you look in the paper, you can find out more about this model. We're showing the, um, two sets of the learned representations from the model. This is for three countries, Italy, sorry, Great Britain, Italy, and the United States in the year 2000, and those same countries in the year 2010. If you inspect the learned representations, what you can see is that, again, um, it's in line with a lot of your intuitions. Um, the overall representations are in the shape of a life table, which is what you'd expect for a mortality forecasting model. Um, the representations in 2010 are slightly lower than those in two, the year 2000, illustrating that the models learnt about mortality improvement, and the ranking of mortality by country has been maintained. I think if you come up with a deep learning model like this, there's a greater risk than in a pricing um, example in that you need to extrapolate. Um, and what you need to put in place are special controls to make sure that as the model predicts from year to year, that that's sensible, especially in years where you actually have got 
uh, haven't fed any data to the model. And then just a last consideration um, of model risk for this model is that it's unlikely to be suffering from unwanted bias, but you need to be careful that if you fit a model on countries experiencing stable mortality improvement in today's environment where in developed countries mortality improvement seem to be tailing off or experiencing much higher volatility than they used to, this type of model may no longer be applicable. So really to summarize and, and uh, bring everything together, what we've done in this presentation is define a formal framework for actuarial modeling covering traditional models, machine learning models, and deep learning models. Um, what we've tried to do is assess what is different between those three types of models and also feed that into our discussion of um, model risk management. Some of the key issues that we've discussed is that your implicit model specification creates opaqueness in deep learning models that you don't really have in traditional actuarial models. Um, and you might need to be especially careful of bias due to representation learning with these types of models. And what we've tried to discuss in this presentation is some controls that we've identified which can help to mitigate some of the additional exposure to model risk. Um, what these controls really require is that actuaries working with deep learning models have a good understanding of this category of models. So we think there's definitely um, some takeaways for the education subcommittee over here. Um, and what we think overall is that the success of these models, the, the demonstrated success of these models in various applications um, and the predictive accuracy means that actuaries should definitely start considering them, but further research into how to mitigate the risks is advisable. So with that, um, we'd like to thank everyone for coming to our session. Let me quickly acknowledge our session chair, Yaku, who gave us a lot of extremely useful input for the paper. Mario Wittrich, who's our co-author, couldn't be here today, but also um, thank you to him, and thank you to our colleagues at QED for, for really helpful discussions of some of these ideas. Is there time for yes. one or two questions? Yes, you have about, so let's say, three to five minutes for questions. So, cool. Um, thank you. Thank you, guys. I think that was uh, uh, a really good presentation. A lot of hard work clearly went into that. And I think you did well to relay and summarize a huge amount of content in just the space of an hour. Um, I have a couple of questions of my own, but I realize that there may be a number of questions from the floor, so I'd maybe want to give the audience an opportunity if there are any particular questions that you'd like to ask of the speakers. You may, you may have to come and stand up on the stage, Dalian, and speak <laughs> into the microphone. Everyone can hear me. Yeah, that's fine. We can hear you. I'll repeat it if they can't. Okay, here we go. Um, thank you. That was super interesting, I think, for most of us. I don't think we know lots about this topic and it really is insightful. I feel I know something uh, today. Um, off the backdrop of some of the discussions that happened yesterday about smart cities and I'm assuming machine learning or deep learning plays quite an important role there and taking into account where the industry seems to be heading or where we hope to be heading in terms of utilizing these techniques. Do you believe that the actuarial society should include in the notes something about machine learning, deep learning, basically the stuff that was discussed today, as well as model risk, to either one of you, or both. So um, what, my, what my answer would be is, I, I think because machine the paradigm of machine learning fits in so well with what actuaries have done, if I was the actuarial society, I'd strip out all the bits on statistical inference um, and get rid of things on F-tests and chi-square tests, and 
only focus on um, the statistics you need to understand machine learning. Um, and I think it would be very easily achievable for the actuarial society. There are great textbooks which discuss um, these issues both from an actuarial perspective and a non-actuarial perspective. And my view would be that the time has come to switch the paradigm to machine learning um, and have actuaries as experts in machine learning. So, yeah. If I can take that one step further, should we, and this is more, now more for Nikolai, so including machine learning in the notes in step one, what about including the model risk framework and guidance? Because whether we're using machine or deep learning at this point, um, models are pervasive throughout the insurers. So, so should we be doing more on that side, and should that maybe make its way into professional guidance around you know, how the HAF and the external audit actuaries and the first-line actuaries actually deal with that? Easy. Uh, yeah, I think definitely. Uh, um, so I think model risk can have a massive impact on the PNL, and even though it's often just one ingredient into the decision making, it's often uh, a quite important one. And I, I do feel that um, sort of the industry or the section of the industry that I'm seeing in terms of insurance are still struggling with the risk appetite, still struggling with the implementation of some of the risk management processes. And there might be more important aspects uh, in terms of risk management that are more urgent to implement. Uh, but model risk has not really been covered, I think, anywhere. And, and I'm surprised, and I think they are. There should be more guidance on it and more training on it so that it becomes easier to implement. I think your, your example about uh, the London Whale, JP Morgan example, really hit home. I mean, some of the more sophisticated insurers that where I get involved will have something around model risk, maybe having a, an inventory of models and so on. And, and it, you know, going through that process highlights just how many models or Excel spreadsheets are floating around in a, that actually are models of some sort and drive decisions, but no one knows about an organization. So. Did I understand you correctly that 157 billion pounds of exposure was being partly run through an Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, that's my understanding. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't feel so bad anymore. Um, just a comment or a question around the value of traditional statistics, mathematical statistics versus machine learning. Um, my understanding is that it's more the data size that is, you know, the larger the data size eventually that will outperform even the most sophisticated machine learning model. Um, but when we're dealing with smaller data sizes, um, particularly for certain experiments where it's, it's very difficult to get a, a large data set, that traditional statistics um, kind of gives you a framework and under the right set of assumptions enables you to put a model um, and, and make forecasts or predictions um, under those circumstances. So that there is potentially value for both um, a machine learning framework and a traditional statistical framework. I don't know what the panel's thoughts are. Um, so so I, would, I would make the distinction not so much in terms of small data and large data. Um, let me just relate one example. that we Earlier this year, we published a paper where we fit a deep neural network on six reserving triangles, and we compared the, the predictions and the quality of the predictions to those from the chain ladder. 
uh, and, and six triangles, I think there was under 500 data points, the neural networks by far outperformed the chain ladder technique. So I don't really believe in the small data versus big data distinction. I think what's important to clarify is what is the goal of actuarial modeling. If it's inference, then tools from inferential statistics become quite important. Um, and I'd say not only inferential statistics, but causal inference, like the framework of Judea Pearl. Um, if your goal is prediction, I don't think you necessarily need to specify stochastic data generating processes, even though it's helpful. And I think that's where a lot of our training is. I think the, the paradigm of prediction that is enabled by machine learning is probably more directly related to what you're trying to accomplish. So I, I, I guess I, I think you can use statistical models for the purposes of prediction and particularly understanding generative statistical modeling. So if you think about fitting distributions to data sets, that's of fundamental importance, I think, to the work that GI actuaries do, say, for capital modeling. Um, but I'm not convinced that the parts of the syllabus around statistical inference are that important right now. So I, I don't know if the other panel members want to comment. I don't think I can top that eloquent answer. Um, but uh, I guess for me, what the first thing I think of um, when I think about the quantity of data available is is the extent to which expert judgment starts featuring. So you always, you know, you always you're considering traditional statistical methods and you and you're balancing that up against something like machine and deep learning. But there's always um, there's always another dimension, and that's like the you're balancing the actual hardcore modeling and the analytical work against the subjective expert input. And in the non-life insurance space in particular, it, f it feels like that always tends to trump the, the, the proper modeling that's done. So I feel, I feel like we've still got a bit of a way to go for the industry to actually understand and get that balance right. So, and in the example that I think sort of the scenario you sketch where you have limited information, I find the actuaries tend to, at least the ones I deal with, tend to then default to their own judgment rather than um, going down those alternative modeling routes, I think, that you're suggesting or asking about. Uh, I think I just, uh, one last thing. Um, I'd say that there are paradigms within statistical modeling, like the Bayesian modeling view, where it becomes easy to incorporate expert judgment in a formalized way. And those models are very powerful, and there's also Bayesian extensions of deep learning. So I think what you find in practice and what Jaku is describing is there's often ad hoc application of expert judgment and I think um, with the framework of making sure that that judgment is documented um, and is sound that we have in SAM, those judgments are probably going to become better and more rigorous. Um, I think where, where there can be a convergence between modeling and expert judgment is in paradigms like Bayesian modeling. Do we have any other further questions? We're, we're a minute or two over time, but I think we can probably take a question if there is anyone burning to ask. Okay, I, I'm burning to ask something, so I'll, I'll use the opportunity to final close the floor with my question. Um, so, so what I'm thinking is, so we've seen around, you know, we've seen your 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 talk around deep learning and model risk and you know, the pitfalls that come with these types of modeling. I'm thinking to my own client base where I interact um, often with risk committees 
and board members who are already struggling um, with the explanations and the models uh, and, the, and the assurance often given to them around things as, as on the simple models like chain ladder models. So I guess my question is, so if we do move in that direction, what is that saying about the kind of skill set that's required, not just by the actual professionals, you know, building and developing mo the models, but actually board members and risk managers and those kind of forum members? Is it, is it making a strong case for actuarial and statistical expertise to make its way into those forums? And isn't there like a major risk that um, a lot of this might just go straight over the head of a lot of board members who will then just ultimately rely on someone to say, is it fine or not? Just to tell me, is it okay or not? Like, should we trust this or not? Yeah, I think you're pointing to a problem that is real. Um, and I think we probably have to move from both sides. So I think the understanding in the board, there's no, I mean, they are accountable in the end, and that means they need to make the decision or at least delegate the responsibility for the decision, including the modeling ones and the, including those decisions that are heavily based on model results. And they need to be comfortable in a way with the, uh, with the decision that was made. Uh, and hence, yeah, there's definitely a requirement for more training and for more skill set, whether it's actuarial or data science or uh, in, a, in a representation on a board level. And that can be an issue in terms of representation, but I think that's just the way it is. The other side, we also need to get better at explaining these things on a board level, right? Um, and I think that's where we have to move as actuaries in order to be able to um, adequately present the things that are relevant on a board level and not be too technical and so on. So I think it's, it's both sides that need to move. Yeah. So you're saying we need to beef up the communications course as well? Okay. I'm glad I passed it eventually. Okay. Thank you very much, Ron and Nikolai. I think that was a great talk. Thank you also, audience members, for your participation and for the questions and interaction. So, and with that, the session comes to a close, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.